0: You can open your bibles to revelation chapter 1 revelation chapter 1 we're looking at verses 12 through 20 picking up where we left off and in fact we won't complete the whole passage this morning there's just too much to cover in this initial vision of the son of man but we'll make it through the beginning of verse 17 but i'm going to read the the whole passage when we get to that this is Just as a reminder of where we've been, the prologue, those first three verses of Revelation 1, John informed us about how, how the revelation came to him, right? that an angel was sent to him by Jesus, and he received that revelation, and then the triune God has greeted his redeemed church in verses 4 through 8, and reminds us that we are a kingdom of priests. And then Christ is, uh, commissions John. At the beginning of this vision here, verses 9 through 11, send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And so John addressed them as a brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And so we belong to the kingdom because we have submitted to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in our passage this morning, we will get a glimpse of the king and his royal splendor. John, in his vision, saw the Lord in glorious majesty, and he heard his self-description, which follows in verses 17 through 20. It's filled with divine attributes, and both his appearance and his message point to the justice that he will bring as he returns to judge. And so the following passage really follows a typical pattern of apocalyptic visions. There's the vision that's received, and that's followed by the response of the recipient of that vision. And then there's the, um, the interpretation of the vision that's provided. And so you have vision, response, interpretation. The vision of our glorious judge is meant to, to strengthen the church, even as it did John. While he was in exile on Patmos. Um, and so, if we could kind of summarize this passage, I might say it this way The majesty of Christ reveals his authority to bring divine judgment and to preserve his elect. Right? The majesty of Christ reveals his authority to bring divine judgment and preserve his elect. That's the, the purpose of this vision for John. The language of the elect, it's not elitist terminology. Right, our, our English word election simply stems from the Greek word to choose. It, it comes from that root, the, to choose. So Jesus himself defines election for us in John 15, 16, saying, You did not choose me, but I chose you. We might say, You did not elect me, but I elected you. So the vision of Christ in this passage affirms his authority, both to judge and to preserve. His people. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this passage. We thank you for this book of Revelation and, and its purpose to strengthen us, to increase our faith, to give us a, a reaction of both conviction and comfort by the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would do that work that only you can do, that you would open blind eyes, that you would open deaf ears, and that you would soften hardened hearts so that we might respond in obedience to this truth, increase in our faith and our love for you, Lord, and go out, having been in your presence, to to, to recognize that you are with us wherever we go, to continue to reflect upon your word and to be challenged by it, to be changed by it. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name, amen. So read with me, Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well John interrupts the the speech of the doesn't interrupt but interjects the, kind of the providing a parenthesis here for the speech of the son of man where he's takes the time to describe what he's actually seen right it's he's he's heard the voice and then he turns to see the son of man and he describes that appearance before he goes back to the words that the son of man is saying and so it's it begins with verses 12 through 16 here, this, the splendor of glory. If you're following along in your outline there, you can fill that in, the splendor of glory, verses 12 through 16. And He talks about the witness of the church. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Um, it, it's important to keep this overall image in mind. Of what John sees. This is a powerful portrayal of our Lord in his role as the great prophet, priest, and king. He is our royal high priest, standing in majestic authority. He's the king who can bring that authority to bear an uncompromising judgment, even as we saw there from Ezekiel 5. And his prophetic message reveals his divinity, it warns his enemies, and it comforts his bride. So the description here draws heavily upon two images in Daniel, one of the Ancient of Days in chapter 7, verse 9, and that's combined with this human figure from Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, where this human figure would defeat the succession of pagan kingdoms. And really, that's a reflection of the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2, the, the uh, interpretation of the dream there where... where Christ would put an end to the pagan kingdoms. So Poitras writes this, what was distant for Daniel has now become reality through Christ's death and resurrection. What he only saw in images John has seen, he's witnessed it himself. So after hearing his commission to write, John turns and sees these seven golden lampstands and we can jump ahead to verse 20 and recognize that the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches to whom he's writing. Jesus called his disciples the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, Matthew 5, 14. So they were to be a stand upon which the lamp of the gospel would continually burn as a witness to those living in darkness. We'll see this again in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, where the, the church is again represented as lampstands witnessing between Christ's first and second coming. So at times, in the, in the face of severe persecution, the church remains steadfast as, as a stand, a lampstand. Notice it's the stand. They're, they're not the light. The church is not the light, but it's the stand upon which the light shines forth, the light of the gospel, shining in darkness. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were martyred for their Christian faith under the reign of Roman Catholic Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary. And when the flames of their execution were lit, Latimer encouraged his companion. And you've probably heard this quote before, "Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out." And of course, it's a, an incredible example of their strength in the face of persecution, even while the flames are rising. They're proclaiming their faith and trust that God will use this for his good. And through Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer's death, known as the Oxford Martyrs, it certainly did fuel the Reformation in England. Rick Phillips says, Surely it's in large part due to the dim light and lukewarm commitment of so many worldly Christians and churches that so few people pay attention to the gospel today. It has always been believers who shined and burned for Christ who gained the world's notice. And so let us be mindful of our purpose as a lampstand. We represent the light of Christ. We cannot shy away from our task based upon cultural pressures. We were to remain steadfast in our stand against the world, the flesh, And the devil. We can only do that when we have a proper perspective of the Son of Man. And so, this vision that John received here before the persecution continued to intensify, this vision would be what carried his church through that time. It is what encourages us to persevere and to endure. And so, what is the picture that we have? It's of Christ, our priest, standing in our midst. That's what he sees the seven churches or the seven golden lampstands, and then verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. These are the priestly garments that he's wearing here, a robe that goes down to his feet. And as the church shines the light of the gospel, Jesus Christ is there in their midst, tending to them in the same way that the priests of the of the old tended to the candlestick in the tabernacle and the temple. They had to continually trim the wick and and refill the oil to make sure that the light would continually burn. That is what Christ is doing. He's continually refining us. He's continuing to, to trim the wick. He's making sure that the oil of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us so that we might continue to shine forth in the world. His gospel message. He makes sure that the oil never runs dry. The wicks are always trimmed. And through his constant care, Christ upholds the witness of the church throughout this present age. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He remains our faithful high priest who continually grants access to the Father and intercedes before the Father on our behalf. And so he's emboldening the church. He empowers them by his spirit. He is with them in their persecution. His compassionate ministry continues today, even as, as he fulfills the prophecy from Isaiah 42, and it's quoted in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. It's a beautiful image right, of, our, of our high priest protecting us if you feel the faith that your faith is bending like a reed that's about to break, or if you feel like your faith is this faintly burning wick, you can trust that when you rest in your Savior, He lovingly protects you. He strengthens your back, He cups His hands around the candle so that the winds of persecution and temptation will not snuff it out, that you'll be able to endure. And he protects the smoldering wick while at the same time bringing forth justice, bringing forth judgment upon the imposters or upon the nations who persecute the church. He's the one granting success, success and growth to the churches. Right? He builds his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And as we'll see in the letters, he's also the one who can remove the lampstand. Its post. He has the authority to tend and prepare and and take care of that light, and he can remove the lampstand when we rebel and unrepent and and remain in unrepentant rebellion. We also see in this image the authority of Christ, our King. Verses fourteen through sixteen. You have the hairs of his head are white like white wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in the furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. It's this, this imagery that follows points to Christ's kingly role. He's our sovereign ruler. His purity and wisdom are depicted by the white hair, which resembles the ancient of days in Daniel 7, 9. And once again, we find this the vision describing Jesus in terms which the Old Testament applies to the Father. And we see this Trinitarian description, right? His divine attributes and qualities. He's equal with the Father. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. And his burning eyes depict his holy, the holy presence of God. Our fire has that dual purpose of both purifying, but also punishing. His bronze feet represent the the warrior on mission to conquer all his and our enemies. His roaring voice reminds John of the sound of the, the crashing waves against the island of Patmos. It's just this overwhelming sound, this thunderous sound. The same phrase occurs later on with the multitude that are crying out, Hallelujah to the Lord. It's just this thunderous noise. roar of many waters. It comes from Ezekiel 43, verse 2, where God is described as coming to destroy the city. And his thundering voice would strike fear in whoever stood opposed to him. And then there's this image of him holding the seven stars in his hand, again, representing his sovereign rule, his cosmic rule, if you will. Again, the question is, have have you bowed before the king of kings? this display of God's glory as as revealed in his word, has that brought you to your knees in humble submission? Christ, as our king, subdues us to himself. He's the one who goes into battle before us. He conquers his and our enemies, and so we need to ensure that we're on his side, that he is fighting for us and not against us. And so we must humbly submit to him as our Lord. Or we will hear words of condemnation. And that's what you have represented in verse 16 here the condemnation of Christ our prophet. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The, the sword represents Christ coming in judgment. His word is the double-edged sword that has the power to save and condemn. And it's clearly a condemning judgment here. He'll he'll reflect upon that again in chapter 2, verse 16. Um, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Right, His, His judgment will certainly fall upon unbelievers in pagan nations. But he will not spare those wolves who hide among the sheep. Right? His shining face is, is reminiscent of the, of the glory that has shone upon Moses' face whenever he departed from the Lord's presence. It's reflected as well in, in his transfiguration in the Gospels, which we'll look at tonight. But Moses' glory would, would fade over time, but the glory of Christ will, will continue to shine for all eternity. It lights up the new heavens and new earth so that the sun is not even necessary. That's the splendor that he's represented, as displaying. And and what we have in this description of the Son of Man is the revelation of the attributes and character of Jesus. This is not a a portrait of Jesus in his glorified body. This isn't necessarily what we're going to see when we we meet him. It's a description of... Of who he is. It's a representation of his divine identity. We see his infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth on display through these images. And we see these attributes displayed in his eternal role as our great prophet, priest, and king. Greg Bill says, Jesus' constant presence with the churches means that he always knows their spiritual condition, which results either in blessing or judgment. And so there's both a convicting component to that and a comforting aspect to his presence. The purpose of the Old Testament prophets was to bring words of comfort to those who were persevering under trial, but it was also words of warning and judgment to those who were living in rebellion. You cannot ignore one side of that in order to attract more people, prophets were oftentimes killed, not received with glowing recommendation. Jesus Christ is present even now, right? His presence will may, uh, may bring you a sense of guilt. <clears throat> it may bring you a sense of shame that will either lead to repentance or judgment if, if it remains unrepentant. Conviction is a necessary component of faith. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. And to wallow in that conviction, true repentance is always accompanied by an apprehension of the mercy of God that is held out to us in Jesus Christ. All right, when we know him as he truly is, we willingly submit to him and offer our lives as a living sacrifice that is made holy and acceptable by him alone. He's the one interceding for us before his Father. And so upon seeing this appearance of the Son of Man, John experiences the effect of glory. That's the the second part there in your outline, verse 17a, the effect of glory. John's overwhelming reaction to seeing the glory of the Lord is typical, right? This is what oftentimes happens in theophanic visions. And That's just a, theophany is just a a term for God revealing himself in some physical manifestation, some physical form, portrayal. So in this theophanic vision, visions like this are rare in scripture, but they're almost universally filled with fearful reactions. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they all reacted in very similar ways when they saw the glory of God. In fact, three of the disciples, including John himself, reacted in the same way when Jesus was transfigured before them. This is what we read in Matthew chapter 17, verses six through eight. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. John was experiencing something of deja vu here. And he's having this same encounter here, seeing and witnessing the glory of his Savior falling on his face and then hearing and fearing or or feeling his hand upon him saying, fear not. Why would John be filled with, with fear? And when he sees the glory We want to kind of insert their awe. We want to insert something different, like amazed. But it's fear. Why does the glory of Jesus leave John face down in the dirt? Face down in the ground. Charles Spurgeon says, The most spiritual and sanctified minds, when they fully perceive the majesty and holiness of God, are so greatly conscious of the great disproportion between themselves and the Lord that they are humbled and filled with holy awe and even with dread and alarm. The awe is, is appropriate. It goes together with fear. But we shouldn't minimize this component of fear. To behold Jesus, even in veiled glory, is to be aware of his perfect righteousness and holiness and recognize our own unworthiness to remain standing before him. His holiness creates a sharp contrast with our sinfulness. So John, being humbled and, and a mature saint, was fully aware of his ongoing struggle with sin, even in his 80s at this point. His fear stems from the recognition of his own unworthiness to stand before the Son of Man. And so he's following in the steps of Isaiah, whose vision of the throne of God led him to declare, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Peter had a similar reaction when Jesus provided the miraculous catch of fish. He fell down at Jesus' knees and cried out, depart from me, or he fell down upon his knees. At Jesus' feet and he cried out, "Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord." He recognizes his sovereignty. He recognized His holiness and His majesty, and the only proper was, response was humility. The holiness of Jesus ought to leave sinful humans terrified. It ought to. It's an appropriate reaction. When we catch a glimpse of his purity, we begin to recognize the horrifying clarity of our own filthy garments. And so in that, we'll we'll come to a conclusion here, and, and we're going to cover that third section next week. But if if you want some closure to your outline there, in your, follow, in your outline you can fill it in, The Announcement of Glory. The Announcement of Glory. But that'll be the title of our sermon next week. I want to conclude with this idea. Right? If you have never fallen on your face in humility before the glorious judge of the universe, then you must not know him as he has revealed himself. And I'm not talking about simply an emotional, physical reaction like where you've literally been prostrate on the ground. I'm talking about a heartfelt posture of your whole being. If the holiness of our Lord who remains in our midst even now does not strike an equally fearful reverence in us, then we likely are not as mature in our faith. A lack of fear does not make you stronger. It reveals just how weak we are when we disconnect our head from our hearts, where we think we know everything we need to know, but our hearts are far from God. When we can worship God only in our thoughts, and our emotions are far from him, we should be fearful and we should cry out to him to stir up in us repentance and faith. Joel Beakey says, in Gethsemane, the enemies of Jesus fall backward in terror when Jesus declared his glory as I am. When he said I am in John 18, 6, the enemies fall back in terror. By contrast, John falls toward his Lord. He falls down at his feet. Enemies fall away from Christ, but his people fall toward him. That's the difference here in the fear that we experience as followers of Christ. We we fall toward him and we cling to him all the more. In response, Jesus lays his hand on that penitent sinner and he says, Fear not. And he remains with him and he picks him back up and he gives him his own garments of righteousness so that he might continue to stand and boldly proclaim the righteousness of Christ as his own. It's that very sense of our own unworthiness that causes us to cling to Christ. None of us can be saved until we die to ourselves and fall at his feet in humble reliance upon him. So let's pray that that happens, even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture of of, uh, the glorious appearance of our judge, Jesus Christ. We pray that if there is anyone here present who has not fallen before him in, in fearful submission to the king, that they might do so, even now that they might submit themselves to his lordship. Lord, we pray that we also might experience that in an ongoing sense, that that we would continually be convicted by our sin, reminded of the holiness of our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we come to worship, that we would be brought to our knees. that we would turn away from our sin, that we would turn to Christ. and, And only then would we hear him say, fear not. That We could go on in peace, that we could worship in the assurance that only Christ can provide. Lord, help us not to be comfortable in our sin, but help us to rest in Christ alone and his righteousness. And may you receive all the glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.